What if you could become more than yourself? What if others could see you as more than just the sum total of your parts? What if, what if you could become the person that God intended for you to be? Jesus' word was so clear this morning. Be simply who you are, and you'll become more than yourself. Accept that what you've been given in life is enough. Look in the mirror and, and say to yourself, I am, I am God's child, and that is more than enough. Now, I'm a preacher, and I know it's a lot easier to say that than it is to practice it. When I was 34 years old, I was invited to apply for a position at a church in Atlanta, Georgia, as the senior minister. I, I sent all my materials off, did a telephone interview, found out a week or two later that, that I was one of the finalists and they wanted to fly me out for, for a full interview. So I called a friend of mine who was a, a great preacher, one of my mentors, and really somebody I, I highly admired, who I really wanted to be like when I grew up, as, as it were. And I said, can I get a couple of hours of your time? I want to do senior ministry 101. I want to learn everything I need to know about being a senior pastor of a church, from finances to pastoral care to preaching to leading the staff and, and all the rest. He said, sure. And we spent two hours together. It was great. I took notes. I filled up a yellow pad with four or five pages of, of handwritten notes. And at the end, I kind of took a breath and I said, thank you very much. And, and I said, and I looked right, at, right in his face and I said, you know, this is the first time in all the years that I've known you that I realize I don't have to be you. And he said, Miles, you're such a dork. <laughs> True, truer words have never be, been spoken. Jesus wants me to know, Jesus wants you to know, Jesus wants all of us to know that you can become more than yourself if you will be simply yourself. As I said, though, it's, 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 not a, it's not an easy thing to do. 25 years later, after that conversation with, with my mentor, I still have a tendency to look at other preachers and wish that I could sell as many books as he does or be as great in the pulpit as he is or be a wonderful pastor like she is. And I find myself just trying to feed my ego, and the next thing I know, I'm starving because it's such a path, it's such a ridiculous path to walk upon. My friend Paul, who used to work at me at the church in San Diego where I served, uh, back when I was interviewing for that church in, in Atlanta, uh, used to say to me, Miles, comparison is the thief of joy. But even him saying that to me made me feel as though I was less wise than my friend Paul. <laughs> Until I was happy to find out that that quote actually is attributed to Teddy Roosevelt, who may not have said it, but at least it wasn't my friend Paul who said it first. <laughs> I know all that seems silly in some ways, but it is something I suspect many of us experience or sense. In order to feel good about ourselves, we want, sometimes we want more, more money, more power, more, uh, more prestige, more honor, more whatever it is. And, and maybe we don't need to be on the front page of the Columbus Dispatch as a, as a model citizen or something like that. Maybe it's just in our neighborhood that we want that prestige. Maybe it's just in our church. Maybe it's just in our homes. How much turmoil is there in homes in America right now? Because somebody wants more and doesn't care what they have to do to their family to get whatever more they want. Jesus addresses this with this sweet little parable that we, that we heard a, a few moments ago. It's basically uh, about dinner party etiquette. When you get invited to somebody's home, don't sit at the head of the table when you come to the party. Assume that you're sitting somewhere else. 
And, and, you'll, and if you get asked and invited to move up and to sit at the head of the table, well, that's a nice honor to receive. But assume you're, assume you're a place, a more humble place, and that'll be the better way to approach it. Maybe a way to contemporize that is to say, if you get invited to somebody's house for Thanksgiving, don't go and sit at the main table. Go sit with the kids first at the kids' table. And in fact, if your crazy Uncle Bob is at the main table, you'll probably enjoy things more at the kids' table. <clears throat> it's simple, clear advice. Uh, by, by the way, just an, a quick aside here. I want to say this on behalf of my pastor, my pastoral colleagues, uh, also Sarah Keentz who's not here, Jim Long and David Head who are, aren't here this, this weekend. If you invite us over for dinner, you do not have to ask us to pray. Can, can we, the, the only ones laughing are the preachers because they know. It's like, it, and don't, don't feel that we will be offended. We'll actually be impressed if you pray yourself. And it doesn't matter if all you say is thank you God for the food. That's awesome. That means we don't have to work for our, for our food. So just a quick aside. So here's this simple, here's this simple, this simple dinner table etiquette a nice teaching from Jesus that frankly reflects several Proverbs. If you went back and read through the book of Proverbs, you'd find this teaching there in the book of Proverbs and it makes sense in a, in a broader way. And if that's all we have to say today, then the sermon could be ending right now and we, we'd be done very early. And I just dare you to say amen to that. Uh, uh, too bad. You see, this parable is connected to the story that happened immediately before it. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, which was a controversy a couple of weeks ago when he heals a woman on the Sabbath. And he basically says to these religious leaders, wait a second, you're criticizing me for healing a woman who's been bent over for 18 years when if your donkey is thirsty, you would walk your donkey to the nearest water to take care of the donkey? Come on, this daughter of Abraham deserves to be given a, a new chance at life. Well, he heals this man on the Sabbath of something called dropsy. Nobody, nobody challenges him now. He's like, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? And the religious leaders realize they just should be quiet and not get into an argument with them. Dropsy is sometimes referred to today as edema. I hope I'm saying that correctly. It's the, the retention of fluid. Oftentimes it hits our lower extremities, can be terribly painful, even can cause death if not treated. In antiquity, Philosophers saw this disease, which they called dropsy, which is re related to the word hydros, which means water. They, called, they, they understood dropsy as a metaphor for unquenchable desire, insatiable desire for more and more and more. The idea was oftentimes we humans get so caught up in the desire for more and more and more that it can literally swell and kill us, if not physically, kill our spirits. You see, what Jesus is saying is, you think that miracle of healing the man of dropsy was something? What if we, and he's talking to the religious leaders, he's talking to us, what if we could be healed? What if our hearts, souls, and minds could be healed of the insatiable desire for more, for more power, for more prestige, for more wealth, for more honor, whatever it is. What, what, what kind of a miracle, how amazing would that miracle be if our culture, if our world could be set free from that? Think of what might happen. Think of how amazing that would be to let go of all those desires, to simply be who you are and become more than yourself. 
Jesus wants us to see that that's the, that's the pathway, that's the direction that leads to freedom, to new life, to living in the way, in the way of God. Do you know where miracles begin? Miracles don't begin when Jesus says to someone, rise, for you've been, you've been healed. Miracles don't begin with the touch. Miracles don't begin with some, some proper word. No, miracles begin with dreams. When we look at something that seems impossible and we dream, what would our world be like if the impossible could become possible? I mean, think about this for a moment. Walter, Walter Brueggemann is the one who helped me understand this. He's a great Old Testament scholar. Brueggemann says that the freedom for the, the miracle of the Hebrew slaves being set free did not begin when, Pharaoh walked, when Moses walked up to Pharaoh, the most pl- powerful political person in the world, and said to him, let my people go. It was a courageous moment. It's a great sermon, four words long. It was a theologian speaking to a politician and that sermon had political implications, but that's not, where, that's not where the freedom for the slaves began. It didn't happen either when the slave masters, overwhelmed by all the plagues that were attacking and, and plaguing Egypt, and the slave masters just kind of threw up their hands and said, I, we can't take this anymore. We gotta let these slaves go. That's not where it began. It didn't begin when the Red Sea parted and the Hebrews made their way through to the other side, finally to the other side of freedom, escaped, escaping from Egypt. That's not where it began. Where did the miracle, where did the, where did the impossible become possible? Where did it begin? When Moses was still in the wilderness, hiding because he'd killed somebody in Egypt, tending his father's flocks. When Moses began to dream and in a conversation, in this dreamlike conversation with God, began to dream of a world without slavery. It begins with the dream. It begins when we can imagine it. Think of civil rights. Where did civil rights begin? It began when African Americans dreamed of simple things that seemed impossible back then. To go to the same schools, to stay in the same hotels, to eat at the same restaurants, to swim in the same pools. Martin Luther King came along and gave words to that dream in his amazing speech, I Have a Dream. And 60 years later, it seems as though the dream is is getting foggy or forgotten because the scourge of racism continues to cloud our land. It's ugly and awful. It seems to have gotten worse in the last five or six years, but the dream is still alive. The dream is still alive. We have a way, we've come a long way and we have a ways to go, but the dream continues. What would happen if we could accept Jesus' way as our way? If we could see that the the willingness to let go of these things leads to new life, to freedom for us. The problem is, those oftentimes who are in power, when they even hear about the dream, they get nervous. They want to hold on to everything they possibly can. They don't care what you might want or what somebody else may want. They don't care about the freedom of others. They hold on to it as much as we can. I, I, think, I think human beings have been caught up with this since the very first ones stood up on two feet out of the primordial mud hundreds of thousands of years ago. 
There's always been a, a desire, it seems as though, among, our, among our humans to divide by class, to divide by category, to divide by who's at the top and who's at, who's at, the, at the bottom. It's always seemed to have, been, to have been that way since the very beginning of time. I, I read this week about um, the Wild West and stagecoaches. Do you know that stagecoaches sold their seats by class, much in the same way airlines do on uh, seats on airplanes? There was first class, second class, and third class. It seems kind of strange because most stagecoaches didn't have more than six seats, and everyone was stuck inside that little coach itself. What difference would there be? Well, first class meant that if a stagecoach encountered a problem, say it was a steep incline, where they needed some help to push it up the, the, the hill. Or maybe it was a day like this, it was raining and the roads had turned to mud and, and they hit a, a muddy bog and the wheels got stuck in the, in, in the mud. If you were in first class, you didn't have to do anything about it. You could just stay in your seat. It wasn't about the size of your seat. It wasn't those who got free drinks or food or anything, no. You just didn't have to get out. If you bought a second class ticket, you had to get out of the stagecoach in order to make it lighter so it would be easier to push up the hill or pull out of the mud but you didn't have to do anything. You just had to get out and stand there and watch. If you were a third-class passenger, you were required to get out of the stagecoach, step down in the mud if necessary, and work with the driver to get the wheels moving and get the, the coach going again. First class, second class, third class. John Claypool, a great preacher, says that in God's kingdom, in God's way, in God's understanding, first class means you have the privilege. You've been moved. You've been moved in the way society sees things, and you've been given a first-class ticket, and that means you now have the privilege of serving those, of caring where there's a need, of helping to solve the problem, to get out of the coach and step down in the mud if necessary, to dirty yourself, to do whatever you can to help the world move forward. Jesus had a beautiful parable about caring for the least of these, and any time you do that, it's as though you're serving God's very self. Still, though, we have a hard time with that, don't we? <clears throat> it's not always that easy. When I was a little boy, about three or four, that's when I began to love Jesus. I loved the stories of Jesus that I heard at church and at Sunday school. Sometimes Sunday school, like Tim said about his nephew, was awesome. I just loved the stories. And I heard, what I heard about Jesus was that he loved the little children. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. My favorite quote in the, in, in the stories of Jesus when I was a little boy was, bring the children unto me. Bring, let them come to me. Don't send them out. Let them be here with me. As I got older, I still loved Jesus very much, but I began to notice something about our family. I, every year for the new school year in September, and that's when school began on the West Coast. This idea of starting in August still bothers me, but that, that's for another topic. I'd got a new pair of shoes, a new pair of pants, and a new shirt. That was it. Didn't think much about it until I got to be around third grade, and I noticed other kids didn't wear the same shirt every day. And other kids didn't wear the same jeans every day, even if they got holes in them. Although, of course, today, holy jeans are, are preferred, it seems as though. I began to notice that our family didn't have as many things as my friends, and we lived in a place or a house or an apartment that wasn't nearly as nice as my other friends. And then at one point, I was signed up for the free lunch program. Looking back now, I recognize that we were living just at or below the poverty level. 
My father was a pastor, but his compensation was extremely low. And there were many years when I was eligible for the free lunch. Many, many years. In fact, one church my dad served, the, 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 the salary was so low that every Sunday afternoon, there would be two, new, two bags of groceries on our porch as a little kid from the church. As a little kid, I thought that was so cool to bring us food. And my dad said, it's a guilt offering. It's not, it's not a nice thing. It's just a guilt, a guilt offering. In eighth grade, my dad got fired, long story. But my mom and dad and us four kids survived because of welfare and food stamps. Please know that the majority of Americans who are on welfare and food stamps are being rescued from a situation like that. At some point, I became this radical guy who was, who was going to fight for the least of these. I recognized we were sometimes in the least of these category. By the time I got out of seminary in my 20s, I was going to become a radical preacher. I was going to fight for justice. I was going to fight for the least of these. And, and frankly, I did. The churches I served, especially in San Diego, we fed, we took care of the hungry. We, we took care of the homeless. We built homes in Mexico. We had adult trips and youth trips to go and build those homes. We did all sorts of amazing things around the community. We, that truly was, that church, like this one, was one that cared for those folks. But then one day, when we were in San Diego, I found out how easy it is to forget. Julie and I just had a baby. He was about two years old. When somebody gifted us with uh, seats to the Outdoor Pops concert right there on San Diego Bay, unbelievably gorgeous setting, 70 degrees, Pops concert. I think it was, it, it was the music of Neil Diamond, which I used to love Neil Diamond, so it was all perfect. It was, it was wonderful. And they said, these are front row seats, by the way. Well, we came down, and the, it was kind of set up like our sanctuary is. There were oh, about three quarters of the seats were chairs. And then at the front, there were like little box seats. Have you seen these little gates around them? That some boxes had two, some boxes had four, others had six. But they told us we were in the front row, so I assumed that meant in the front row of the chairs. I found an usher, and I said, can you show us where our seats are? And she said, oh, come with me. You have box seats. They took us down to the center front, the very front row center box seat. And I kind of looked around and said, I could get used to this. And then I, I started to, to go and, and order some food when the usher came by and said, um, just so you know, your seat comes with a beautiful picnic lunch and a bottle of dinner and a bottle of wine. The food was brought. It was a gorgeous picnic basket, wonderful bottle of wine. I looked at Julie and then I stood up and I kind of looked out at the crowd and went, you know, Julie, I think we deserve this. Julie grew up pretty poor too, by the way, on a farm. Julie looked at me and she said, um, Mr. Radical Preacher, have you forgotten something? <laughs> yeah. Now, let me be clear. Box seats aren't a problem. A, a nice dinner that somebody provides for you is not a problem. Being able to afford a nice bottle of wine, that's not the problem. The problem is when we begin to think that that's, this is what matters the most, that getting more and more and more of these things, instead of counting how great this was for me, and look at us, boy, we finally made it to the top of the heap, at least in this moment. It's about being a blessing. It's about giving ourselves away to the world, about encouraging others to do the same. It's about living in a way that lets go, that realizes whether we're sitting in the box seats or the back row or listening on some, some radio somewhere else. We are enough. I'm enough. You're enough. It's remembering what Paul said about Jesus. He wrote a letter to a church in Philippi, and he said, Jesus did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped and held on to. Instead, he emptied himself took on the form 
of a slave. Today, it's a simple invitation to fall in the way of Jesus, to sit at the kids' table at Thanksgiving. It'll probably be more fun to begin the miracle of changing our homes, our church, our culture, and our world by dreaming that it's possible, that it can happen. Amen.